Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. Today's show features a conversation with the Executive Director of In Common Community Development, Christian Gray, recorded in the summer of 2017. Today's show also features a rebroadcast of a guest panel discussion originally aired in early 2017. The panel was considering the theme of death. It is being re-aired in loving memory of guest Keisha Holloway, who died last week. She will be remembered as a bright, social, loving human. Joining me in conversation is Christian Gray, the Executive Director of Incommon Community Development. Christian was born and raised in California, moving to Tucson, Arizona, where he earned a Bachelor's of Art degree in communication and, more importantly, met his wife Sonia. In 2004, Christian relocated to Omaha to join Word Made Flesh, a faith-based organization addressing global poverty and supporting the poor. In 2006, Christian became the Executive Director of Incommon Community Development, which is committed to the strengthening and uniting of neighborhoods and neighbors. Christian, welcome to the show. Hello, Stuart. Tell me more about the work that is being done by Incommon. And, and you know what? I actually don't really know the history of Incommon. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me a little bit about it, its history, its founding, and, and so on and so forth. Sure. Yeah, so it started in 2003. Um, at least it became an official 501c3 at that point. And it wasn't until a few years later that we um, started volunteering and, and then worked there. But the history... Or the origin of it was it started as, as a part of a, a church that wanted to, to be a, a, a church sort of in the urban part of Omaha. And at that time, that was pretty unique. I think we were seeing more and more of that now, but it was a pretty unique, unique expression of church. And they, they realized as they were planting this church that because they knew that it was, uh, you know, faith is more than just um, belief, it's, it's work and it's caring for others, um, that they started the 501c3 because they wanted to have a real solid expression of what that could look like. So the church ended up closing down some years later. Um, so when I came on, it was just the, the nonprofit organization. And uh, it was always looking at how do we do community development? Some, it was, I would call it a, a laboratory of community development, which was a beautiful thing about it, and I hope still is, where uh, we were experimenting with different ways to impact the community in a healthy way. And I think, I think one of the things that we've been great at is creativity and, and looking at best practices and figuring out how we can build on best practices and adapt those in, in creative ways. Um, so now we're really focused on the neighborhood uh, part of community development you operate in Omaha. Mm-hmm. What are the areas that, that you operate within? Well, our mission, and we can we can unpack a little bit why this mission, but this the mission is to alleviate poverty at a root level by uniting and strengthening vulnerable neighborhoods. And uh, we're we're intentional about the plurality of neighborhoods because um, uh, really really we want to focus on individual neighborhoods and, and but also be aware of the fact that investing in a neighborhood requires a great deal of capacity and a great deal of time. So where we're predominantly uh, invested right now is the Park Avenue area, which is a kind of a, a, a accumulation of a couple of different neighborhoods, the Ford Burr site and the Leavenworth area. Describe the character of that area. It is an awesome neighborhood. We love it so much. Um, it really is. It's such a diverse neighborhood, and it's it's um, it's one of the 
It, it will, it is. We just actually looked at some data recently. It's the most dense neighborhood in Omaha. So it's just jam packed with people and people ranging from all different walks of life. And, uh, you know, some have described Park Avenue as the melting pot of Omaha because it's kind of where uh, North Omaha and South Omaha spill over into kind of this, this Eastern midtown part of our, our city. So, we love it a lot. And it's, it's got such a great history. Um, you know, as you can probably tell from the name Park Avenue, this was the, the main, the main place to be back in the day. So this is where, where all the, the wealth was and where there's a lot of activity and excitement and, um, you know, where, where a lot of people of influence, uh, lived back in at the turn of the century. And we just love it. That sounds interesting to me. And it's, it conjures a different context, I think, than perhaps might exist stereotypically today. So if you can, paint a little bit more of that turn-of-the-century picture for the area. Yeah, well, um, you know, this is where all the, from what I from what I read, and I can tell, like, you know, the doctors and lawyers and all the folks um, who had influence back in the day moved. And this was the first ring of um, kind of uh, the suburbs, and so um, people would commute back and forth to downtown. And back in the day, it was the, the trolley car. And that's why it become such, became such a dense neighborhood is because the, the trolley car ran right through Park Avenue and uh, created multifamily housing. So we have uh, the, the first multifamily housing units um, available. But then uh, as, as time went on, and particularly the 1950s with the, um, the interstate uh, projects um, going through the community, which affected both uh, Park Avenue and South Omaha and North Omaha, that that drastically changed the community, um, and uh, just different uh, zoning policies and, and you know there's such a history of of how neighborhoods and places turn from one thing to the other, but of course as we sit here and talk now we're we're seeing kind of a uh, revitalization as many people would call it um, that we're also trying to to na- navigate through um, in in the present day. So let's take that word revitalization and then let me just throw a different word at you, gentrification, mm-hmm. and then just ask if there are facets of both of these intention, and I don't mean intention in terms of uh, conflict, but, but there is some competition perhaps between the vibrancy of the community and perhaps for whom it is vibrant. Um, right. So maybe talk about some of those characteristics. Absolutely. Yes. Um yeah, we we get to see firsthand in Park Avenue what redevelopment and gentrification look like, and I think it's um, it's really fascinating because I think we've we've often read stories of what this looks like in San Francisco and New York or what what have you, and maybe we've even visited those places or lived in those places. But th- for that for Omaha, and I know this isn't happening just exclusively in Park Avenue, but maybe maybe most profoundly in Park Avenue, we're seeing this take shape, and it's really a, a it's really a, a gray topic because it's it's so nuanced and it's too so two-sided so the the beginning of course is is you get new residents so vac- vacant buildings um, places that were abandoned and dilapidated now are being filled with with people who who want to live in the community and um, who have have some energy for the community and oftentimes these are folks who have uh, wealth and different resources that can be invested in and utilized in the neighborhood at the same time you see the pressure being placed on the existing population and uh, you begin to worry about the friends that you know and the people that you've gotten to develop relationships with in terms of what their fate is and how long they can withstand the development and you know the, the challenge with the idea and the concept and the the phenomenon is that I think there's a 
probably a sweet spot of where redevelopment and, and even gentrification, um, kind of play out in terms of development where everybody wins. But I, I don't see that happening organically. I don't see that happening by itself. I think, I think that in the end, um, you know, it, it sort of just takes its own course and it, 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 uh, the engine is purring, if you will, of the market and, and, uh, it, it redevelops and it puts too much pressure on for really lower income people to, to stay and remain over time. So if you were to take a long stroll through the Park Avenue neighborhood, what are the sorts of things that you would encounter? What would your experience be? Yeah, that would be that would be a pretty diverse stroll, I think, because if you started probably uh, north on Park Avenue, you'd see a lot of redevelopment and you've, you'd see probably a lot of people who, if you, if you recalled what your perception of Park Avenue was, you know, five, 10 years ago, uh, it would surprise you because these are, these are young professionals and uh, people that look of, of, you know, of means and um, walk in kind of the, uh, the stereotypical little, little pup down the street. And uh, um, that's, and, and, you know, jogging and doing those kind of things that, you know, maybe we would categorize as, as yuppies would do. That's what the, the north part of Park Avenue would would look like. But sort of in the middle, as you're as you're going south, they start to spill over together, and you're you're starting to see, um, you know, people who you, you wonder maybe they're homeless. Um, you, you can't quite tell by their appearance. Um, you're beginning to see a, a lot of people from a lot of different parts of the world, and you're you're wondering what their story is and how long they've lived in the neighborhood. Um, you're seeing a ton of kids. It's um, we just we have gaggles of kids in Park Avenue, which just makes it so fun. But you'll see them running all over the place, just having a blast. And um, yeah, so you, you'll kind of just all see it intersect. But I think at the same time, it doesn't really intersect. It really, they they exist in two separate worlds, a tale of two cities, uh, sort of the the developed and, um, you know, higher income park, part of Park Avenue and the, the south end. And we've, we've experimented a little bit with trying to weave those two together, but they're they're difficult. Uh, they're, it's a little bit difficult to crack that nut. Could you describe one or two of those experiments to weave together these seemingly disparate uh, sort of cohorts? Sure. Yeah. Um, one of them was recent. We we do a couple block parties every year, and uh, we typically do it um, kind of on the south end of Park Avenue. We have a community center on the corner of Park and Woolworth, and it's just convenient and easy for us and nice for us to be able to do it right outside the center. And um, it, and that's that's a typically lower part, uh, lower income part of of the neighborhood, and people love it. People seem to get into it. We'll get hundreds and hundreds of people to come to these block parties, and it'll be a blast. Um, we tried doing one at the north end just uh, a couple months ago and uh two things happened um not the the intent was could we get folks who are living in kind of these gated community buildings if you would uh, out into a block party so that they could could meet folks um that they may may not interact with and it just didn't happen it just um it just didn't happen. So we saw we saw we saw fewer of the people that we normally see just because it, we created some geographical distance and uh, the folks in those buildings weren't coming out to participate in it. And you know, it was it was actually done in partnership with one of the development uh, companies down there, so that it was well advertised and you know people were asked to participate and help us to build this thing. Um, it wasn't just dropped on them, but even still, it didn't really take. Tell me more about the Bristol apartment building and the Georgia mm-hmm. apartment building. As we get to that, I think it's important to 
to know kind of what makes in common unique is not only are we looking to transform neighborhoods to stop poverty, right? So our, if, if we want to, our, our theory of change is that if we can change zip codes, if we can change neighborhoods, that we then we can stop poverty. We see that in best practices and we see that in, in the research. But really what makes us unique is the the method for us doing that. And we, we use an asset-based approach. And, and the way that we describe it is we transform neighborhoods through neighbors, which is really, um, which is, which is important. I used to be kind of a ends before the means type of person, I think. And as I, as we've done this more and more, I've, I've seen how important the process is because it changes everything. So our process is to develop local heroes, local champions, superheroes of the neighborhood who will then be the change makers to transform the community. Um, so most of everything we do at In Common is to to build into these resident leaders so that they can be the change makers. And that, that, that goes from um, workforce development, which includes adult education and job readiness, uh, career readiness to relationship development. We want people to know each other and outside community members to break that kind of isolation that people sometimes feel in certain neighborhoods. To leadership development, we want them to take on the, the issues and the, the agendas of the neighborhood. And the neighborhood development is the final piece. We want to see that that layout into an actual transformed neighborhood. But it starts with uh, transform people and people who are thriving and, and empowered. Um, and that's really where it brings us to the Bristol and the Georgia Row apartments is that um, we want to see them thrive. So if, if people are moving out, um, if people are being forced out of the neighborhood, then then we cannot develop superhero residents who will change the community. Uh, we're left empty handed. So this has been a, a crucial part of what we've done to to really um, make allow people to stay in place within the neighborhood itself. So we've talked a little bit about the character of the neighborhood and, and its uh, slow and maybe quick evolution in some respects. And we've talked about the mission and activities of In Common. So there are these two buildings and, and I believe you acquired the Bristol first and, and then uh, the Georgia. Tell me a little bit more about what was the intention behind the acquisitions? We've been involved in the neighborhood for about 10 years and, um, and actually probably longer. We've had, before I started there, and I've been there for 10 going on 11 years, we had staff um, who lived in the neighborhood. Uh, there's an intentional um, living house called the the pack house that, that people were living in, kind of a shared home. Uh, we were doing an ESL program. So we have a long history in the neighborhood. And during all those years, during the last uh 10, 15 years, um, there's, it's been, it's been a significant, there's poverty has been pretty significant in the neighborhood and it's been a pretty under-resourced community in terms of there hasn't been a lot of investment or a lot of, um, energy being put into the the neighborhood, um, except uh, until about five years ago when the first form of redevelopment started taking shape and that, that caught wind like wildfire. Um, which again, both it's a double-sided coin. It was both very exciting to see new people moving in and some of these dilapidated buildings being repurposed. But um, again, the other side of the coin is the pressure that it starts to put on residents. And one developer sees the the business model of another and, and so it's, it starts to spread and, and move um, north, south, east, and west. So as we started to see this spread pretty rapidly, and if, if, if you're listening and if you've been through the Park Avenue area. I'm, I'm talking in particular of the Park Avenue and Leavenworth um, uh, cross streets there in, in St. Mary's. You'll, you know, you'll, it's, it's mind boggling to think about how much development's happening there. You know, and again, in an exciting way to what was, what was just 
five or four years ago was, um, was a strip club on the corner. And it was, you know, it was a pretty rundown place. So when I, when I imagine that place, it wasn't, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, it was, it was pretty rundown. And so this is quite different and this has been wildfire. This has been the last four or five years that, that really things have taken off. So to get to your question about what, what brought us into the situation to acquire it and how did that happen? Um, we just started to get to know a lot of residents of the Bristol and we started spending time over there and, uh, we got to know the manager and, and we put a bug in her ear and I said, Hey, look, I know this is owned by an out of town developer and we love this building and it's so important for our community and I'd hate to see it turn and right across the street, some of the highest per square foot rents are, are available for rent. And I don't want that to happen here. I think it's important that we have diversity. And so, um, we brokered a, a, a deal, um, direct without it going on the market, which was a, a great opportunity for us. So our board stepped up and rallied and, and, and figured all this, you know, high level stuff out, which has been incredible for us because we have some amazing thinkers and, and real estate developers ourselves on our, on our board. And, um, and we were able to acquire the Bristol. So that kind of led to the next project, but I'll, I'll pause at that one. So the intention behind that acquisition of, of the Bristol was to maintain a foothold of this, this sort of um, safe preserve of affordable housing within a landscape around it, this Park Avenue area that, that was subject to other market forces and change and to maintain that diversity that you were that you were talking about absolutely that was to, that was the the um the goal for it and it's a it's a pretty large building so it's 64 units for for those of you who are wondering what the bristol is so it was it was a, a way to make a substantial bite or, or preserve a substantial number of units in that that area and we knew just based on the proximity of where that building was based on where the development was happening that that was a very likely candidate for redevelopment. In fact, I, I get calls on it quite often from people in state, out of state, wanting, you know, inquiring about the, the availability of that building. So describe the building itself and describe uh, the residents. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's a 1926, I believe, uh, building. It's, it's, it's kind of a Spanish revival architecture, a really pre pretty Maltese, um, uh, cross shape and um, it's efficiency apartments. So uh, from my understanding, and it's it's now in the historic registry. So I should I should brush up on my notes and, and read the historic application. I believe it was a home for nurses who are working in the Park Ave Hospital just down the street. So um, uh, it's it's yeah it's a it's a beautiful building. It's a solid building which we love. It's poured concrete and um, but it's old. So we've, we we're now into a really old building that needs some love. And, uh, and we have a mixture of residents who live there, both, um, uh, have lived there historically. So my hope as you, as you get into the Bristol and I, I this is a grand slam cause he loves talking, but you'll talk to Larry and you'll hear him talk about living there for the last 16 or 17 years. Um, and you'll talk to people who just moved in last week. So we have a, a diversity of people from kind of how long they've been in the area and the neighborhood. Um, and, and the goal for us is, is, was both, it's kind of a two, two phase approach. We wanted to stop the bleeding, if you will. So we bought the, bought the building and we are, um, kind of just operating it as it was, uh, same rents and, and kind of similar management structure to what it was And the long term uh, project is to redevelop it so that it's a, a brand new building, um, from the, in, the inside walls in and, um, that will be amazing because, of course, an old building is, is a challenge on its own. Um, but uh, this will be as nice as any building up and down the avenue. 
So I can't imagine that this has been plain sailing, either in terms of managing the building. Anybody that's um, been a landlord or a tenant knows that there are always challenges uh, in, in the affordable housing or in the very high-end market. It really doesn't matter. There are always challenges. What are some of the challenges that you've had to address? Yeah, there there are certainly numerous challenges and um, we have had to be pretty hands-on with this project up to this point. Again, when it gets redeveloped, we'll have the, the luxury of being kind of the owners and doing some more social level programming and, and getting away from the business aspect. But for now, to get to that, to bridge that phase, we've, we've really had to be hands-on. And, you know, it's, it's challenging because... Um, yeah, well, obviously the building, the age is a, is a challenge and a beast to to deal with. So there's there's always that issue, but um, it's a vulnerable population. It's you know rents are four hundred four twenty five a month, um, and you have a variety of people from a variety of walks of life, and and some of them are go getters, and this is their opportunity to take a next step forward, and they're they're excited about the opportunity, and, and some um, have, have just had challenges and, and created issues, you know, no, no matter where they've went. And so our issue really has been, how do we get the, the best tenants there? And what I mean, like the, the tenants that will take care of other tenants and the tenants that will, you know, be a part of the neighborhood. And, um, that's been a goal. Uh, and, and it's not always easy, obviously to, to figure out people as you're doing applications and find out who would be the best and healthiest tenant for the other tenants in the building. But it's, you're, you're inviting people into a, a community there it's tight quarters and it's 64 units and in one person's actions affect the next so it's it's not we don't take it lightly who comes in because we, we want them to be a, a productive part of that community that they're coming into so when i think of in common as a an entity that is seeking to strengthen and unite neighborhoods and neighbors the bristol in some ways is a a microcosm sort of a fishbowl of that philosophical ethos brought down to not just the community, but specifically to to the ecosystem uh, of a building. I think so. I think it is a microcosm, and it's 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 a microcosm with with um, uh, a lot of octane in, injected into it, right? Because these are these are folks that aren't just coming together. Um, kind of they, they have space across the street from one another, but they're they're doors are facing each other. And so it, it does bring in a new dynamic of a building community and of seeing people, um, you know, get along and, and know each other. We're, we're, we're very invested in how do we develop those relationships and the social capital of the neighborhood. And so that, that obviously is happening with or without us. Um, I guess the, the with us is we'd like to see that emerge in a healthy, productive, beneficial way that, that produces something good for their individual lives, for the, this microcosm of a community in the Bristol and then spills out into the neighborhood itself. What have been some of the positive changes you've seen since you acquired the Bristol? Well, I mean, I think most of the positive changes are, are mostly the stories of the lives of the tenants that we get to see there. Um, there's a uh, there's a mom with a a kid who lives in the Bristol who who comes to mind, and um, it's tough, right? It's a it's an efficiency apartment. It's tough to tough to have a kid in in. Um, and have the space that you need, but this is this is what they can afford. And she works hard. She she busts her butt to make that place work for her and her family. And um, uh, and they came into my office the other day because they were they were a bit behind on rent, and they wanted to figure out um, 
how they can how how they can get things worked up. And we we love that opportunity at the Bristol because nobody nobody pays on the first of the month. We're always working with people and figuring out how we can make this work for them. And if if they're in it, then we're in it, kind of thing. Um, and and her and her, her, her kid came in and they're looking at the plans because they're up on my wall in my office and they were super excited to see what the Bristol will become. And um, I think they might have come to, yeah, they actually were at, we did some charrettes that were talking about some of the community spaces that will develop in the Bristol and getting residents ideas of what kind of amenities that they wanted. So it's just, it's just really fun to, to begin dreaming about what this project will become with the residents who live there and who work so hard to make it work. And it's so, it's so humbling to see that kind of resolve and, uh, I, yeah, I, that's, that's really what inspires the project going forward is, is these folks deserve so much. And um, we're glad that we were able to preserve affordable housing, but we want it to be some of the best of housing that they've ever lived in ever. So this experience hasn't dissuaded you, uh, in fact, it's persuaded you to Absolutely. invest in another building, the George Rowe apartment building. So tell me a little bit about what spurred the acquisition of another building and what it is you're hoping to achieve with the George Rowe. You know, the Georgia Row was was such an exciting thing that that came our way and and really um, sort of a God providential thing because it's 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 immediately behind the the Bristol Apartments and and I've mentioned thus far that the the great thing about the Bristol is it it preserves 64 units of affordable housing. Um, the the challenge is they're all efficiency apartments, uh, you know, sans a couple within there. So we 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 love. Um, we love our families, obviously, in the neighborhood. We want them to have a safe and thriving and a vibrant place to live as well. And the, the Georgia Row um, uh, produced that opportunity because um, of its proximity. It makes it super easy for us as well because it'll share the same management structure and the same amenities. Um, and it's just a walk across the alley. So it's another historical building, another chance for us to invest in the historical preservation of the neighborhood with with the social impact. Um, so we are really excited about that. And um, that, that building has been closed uh, and dilapidated for uh, several years now. So we're, we're excited to see it come back to life. But it will be two to three bedrooms and will be accommodating to families living in the neighborhood. Have you had to confront objections to this involvement? I'm wondering, for example, if any investors or developers or city planning or other entities in the city have expressed either skepticism or an objection to you taking out of the marketplace what are otherwise viable opportunities to allow the market to direct the re-energizing of the neighborhood. You know, for the most part, I think I think Omaha has been pretty uh, warm about the idea of affordable housing. Um, we haven't seen that happen a lot. Well, there hasn't been too many projects, I think, on kind of in the Midtown area. Um, so that that's probably the newer component of this. It's not it's not soul in that category, but it's it's a fairly new product and idea for that that neighborhood or for that for the Midtown part of our community. And so not not directly have we received any kind of negative push about it. Um, typically, if we, we talk to a developer or somebody in that space, they'll they'll say something pretty affirmative about it. But um, um, you know, we, we do hear things uh, behind the scenes uh, at times. And, um, you know, the challenging thing is that it's it, it can be a different type of culture, right? We have we have people hanging out on the stoop and uh, they're much more active just in terms of the the 
the public space um, the Bristol is relative to some of the the other products um, around the corner or, or across the street. So it, it it has a liveliness that that you know I I wonder if that's if that's always seen and embraced as like this is what it means to live in an urban neighborhood and this is this is what we love to see or if it's looked upon as we want this to become quiet and suburban in the end and and that's that's getting in the way. But um, this is, I, I think we have great support from the city. We've recently were awarded TIFF for our two projects. Um, we recently were, were, were awarded from the, the state and the feds um, historic tax credits to do the project. And in the end, um, we will, we're submitting an application for what are called low income housing tax credits. And that will mean that millions of dollars um, that were previously not in Omaha invested in in housing will make their way to Omaha. So it's it's really a win-win situation where new new capital um, and developments happening in our community from uh, money that's coming outside of our community, and it will last and preserve um, in our community because there's a there's a longevity, a contractual longevity um, commitment to Litech that will will need to abide by. It would be remiss of me not to ask if you miss your childhood upbringing, because I have this idea of California as being, um, well, basically Baywatch. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was. <laughs> yeah. It's a huge state. Uh-huh. And so clearly that's, that's a stereotype born out of, well, let's just call it ignorance. Mm-hmm. What was your upbringing like? Yeah, I grew up in a suburban beach community, and I'm a beach kid, so I, I love when I when I think about my community. Obviously, I think about family and friends, but I also think about sitting on the beach, surfing in the beach. I just just doing that is so part of the uh, part of my DNA, and so um, yeah, I I totally miss that about it. But as I've been in Omaha, I think one of the things that that stands out to Sony and I is the um, it's it's an amazing community to to get involved in. So Orange County is just a, a cluster of so many different cities and, and city councils, and it's, I I can't wrap my mind around uh, the complexity and the um, just everything that's entailed in it. And, and Omaha is just such a beautiful place where um, you can you can make sense, you know, for the most part of, of of how things are run, how things will work, and you can find your place in that. And that's really Something that we want our residents to to be able to see the people that we get to work with and empower is is uh, fi- help them to see where they fit into this community and where they can make an impact. So yeah, I love I love Southern California. Love to visit, but I love living here. I've been in conversation with Christian Gray, the executive director of Income and Community Development. Christian, thank you so much for being on the show. Stuart, it was a pleasure. Live's radio show continues after the break with a rebroadcast of a guest panel discussion originally aired in early 2017. It is being re-aired in loving memory of guest Keisha Holloway, who died last week.
This is Dialogue, the part of the show where guests talk about our week's theme. This week's theme is death. Uh, With me today is Jeanette Taylor. She's a native of Omaha, Nebraska. Jeanette currently serves as the statewide administrator of children's services for Lutheran Family Services. She founded a community-based nonprofit, Impact One Community Connection, in 2009 and served as its executive director for four years, focusing her energy on the marginalized youth and young adults in North Omaha. She attended undergraduate and graduate school at the College of St. Mary, earning a master's in organizational leadership and also earning a master's in negotiation and dispute resolution at Creighton University's School of Law. Hello, Jeanette. Hi, Stuart. Uh, Also with me is Amy Mather, librarian at Omaha Public Library. Uh, She teaches part-time at Metropolitan Community College and is the host of Whatever Mathers, currently on hiatus. She loves art, yoga, and culinary history. Hello, Amy. Hi, Stuart. Uh, Diana Martinez is also here. She is the Film Streams Education Director. She is currently working on a PhD in film and media studies at the University of Oregon. Diana also writes about film and television. Her work has appeared in Slate and The Atlantic. Hello, Diana. Hi, Stuart. And finally, but not least by any stretch, is Keisha Holloway. She's a social selling butterfly at LinkedIn. She has a bachelor's degree in marketing, a master's degree in organizational leadership, and is a graduate of the Interface Web School Full Stack Java course. Keisha is a cancer survivor. She loves developing relationships and embracing human relationships. Hello, Keisha. Hello, Stuart. So uh, death, uh, obviously a morbid topic, uh, but I think it's one that we typically ignore very often. Uh, Before personal reflection on this subject, uh, perhaps a broader social view, uh, it seems to me that we live in a society that denies death. And what I mean by that is that we seem to hide from openly acknowledging it in our cultural discourse, unless it is, you know, some banal quote we see on Instagram or, you know, some other form. So I'm wondering, how do you perceive the subject of death as it appears in our public dialogue and discourse? I think that the thought about death is always evolving for me. Wow, it's such a complicated conversation. So... Yes, we definitely need to talk about it more. It um, recently experienced a huge loss. Um, Renee, who was uh, the chef at Dixie Quicks, mm-hmm. and when he was in hospice, uh, you know, Rob kept Facebooking about the experience and the love story. And, and it was actually an amazing expression of like how you kind of say goodbye to somebody you love of so many years and it was beautiful I think it was probably the most beautiful way that anybody could have like said goodbye to their love of their life and what my friend Donna I have a friend Donna Huber who's an acupuncturist she takes she talks about death all the time and one of the things that she commented on one of the posts is or to about Renee is like it takes it's okay if Renee is tired in hospice it takes work to die. It Mm -hmm. takes a lot of energy to die. And I thought that was so interesting. I love that she said that. And it was, it was like, it was great to acknowledge that. I have a really interesting uh, love affair with death. I know that sounds weird. Um, But being, uh, I have a big family, so we have people that die all the time. And uh, in addition to that, like being at Impact One, we had kids who were murdered like constantly in the summer specifically so we would get calls from 
you know, the hospitals to come and help manage the ER. And it's the toughest thing ever to have to tell a mom that their kid is dead. Um, so I had all those crazy experiences. And then I was in a convenience store and I saw a young man be shot and he died right in front of me. So that's hard. Um, and I went through that for about four years. And then uh, a lot of people know I left Impact One because I had two people in my family who were killed by two of the kids that worked for me. And the second cousin that died, I was really close to him. And so it was hard because he was in hospice care at 34. And it's like, oh, you know, to watch that somebody slowly die over three months was not an easy thing to do. Um, but I think I'm okay with death because I see it so much. And I'm just so happy. Like, I have kids who've died at 15, 16. And to, I'm not going to date myself, be someone from the 70s who's still here. I think it's a, it's a blessing. So we know it's coming. We just have to embrace it and go with it. I think for me, um, what really strikes me about death is so my dad passed away about six years ago of cancer. He had cancer for like a couple years. So we knew that it was going to happen. They told us it was going to happen. But I think what was so strange is because people don't ever talk about it, that it is this really huge monumental event, but it's also filled with so many silly things of the everyday. Like my dad died really early in the morning um, at home. And then like we called the people to come get him and they did. And then it was breakfast time. Mm -hmm. And so we went to McDonald's, like McDonald's drive through And you're just like, they have no idea what just happened. And then, and then you're just like, you keep eating and you keep like mm -hmm. listening to music and we watched a movie because what else is there to do but like you're watching a movie and then you break down crying but like it, it's just it, that the like banality of death like mixed in with this the fact that this huge thing had just happened was really interesting to me and it's still something I think about all the time like how weird death is because it's this huge thing that changes your life completely. It changes your relationship with other people completely. But then like you just you keep doing the things that you did every day. And it's just so weird to me. Well, for me, I think um, I think death is beautiful. And I think it's it's how we are. We leave our legacy behind. And um I wouldn't say I'm obsessed with it, but funerals for me are very, very touching and a very beautiful experience for me. And it wasn't that way until my my little sister passed away. She had lupus and she died at 24 years old. She was very, very young, but she fought and she was very strong and she was very vibrant and loving and compassionate. And she wanted to be here. And when she passed away, she was in the hospital. She was in intensive care. And honestly, it was nothing new for us. It was something that happened every now and then with her. So when she passed away, it was very shocking for me. But when she had her, when we, when we had her service, her funeral, and all these people came to show their respect. I mean, the church was packed. There was no room to sit. People were in the basement just to come and say goodbyes. And um, from that day on, I've, 
grown very um, appreciative of death and the whole process of it from, you know, just being supportive of loved ones who've lost someone and bringing by food, um, checking on them, you know, weeks after the funeral has taken place because people have a tendency to forget. Those are the most difficult times to grieve. Um, but I think we have a tendency to forget how powerful grieving is and um, how powerful death is um, and to not be afraid of it because we are all going to go through it. That's a very beautiful thing um, once it finally happens. And it's so touching to me when I attend funerals and I just sit and I listen to all these people come and talk about all these memories that they share with this person. And then we go on, like you said, and we live our lives like it didn't happen. Um, so for me, death is something that I have embraced for the last 12 years of my life. And it's something that um, I see as a very important milestone in all of our lives. Am I in a room, a studio here with a group of the odd ones out? Yeah. <laughs> uh, only because I, I'm I'm not convinced that our public discourse embraces the beauty no, or the no. inevitability oh, no. of of our mortality. Um, and it makes me wonder if perhaps it's not necessarily the moment of death that we refuse to reflect upon as a society as much as we don't like people that are dying. Mm -hmm. And that maybe means as soon as you hit retirement age, you are on that slope and and at that point the discussion of our impending doom is something we can't we can't face so i don't know if i'm confusing maybe the two things dying or death it's actually really interesting so yeah. i was just um at uh thanksgiving at my boyfriend's house and we had this exact conversation like can you be dying if you don't if it doesn't end in death and it's an interesting question because it's like, what is then dying? Like, it, does it have to lead to death? Like, can you be dying and then like recover from almost dying? Like, is that a possibility? It's oh, like yes. giving a wedding gift and then, and then they, they get <laughs> yeah, divorced quickly. Like, do you take the gift yeah. back or? <laughs> yeah. But I think one of the interesting things for me is that when my dad was dying, I had just moved to a whole new place. I had just started grad school. And, you know, everyone was like talking about their family and all of these things. And it's just really awkward to be like, oh, like my dad is dying. Like, how do you like bring that up? People get awkward. People mm -hmm. get uncomfortable, possibly even more so than if you just say like, oh, he passed away because then they just say, I'm sorry. And they never have to ask why. And they kind of assume that you've dealt with it. Whereas like the process of dying is like it's an ongoing emotional struggle as well as, you know, the body actually like breaking down. I think it's definitely a state of mind, especially for me, since I was I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer three, three years ago. And when I was diagnosed, I didn't think of it as a death sentence. But if you Googled everything about my symptoms and the way my scans looked and the, you know, it was grim, frankly. And my doctor told me, don't Google anything. Mm -hmm. I got medicine. I got everything that we need to get you through this. So honestly, I never, I mean, it was terrifying, frankly. And it was 
you know, very, I knew it was going to be a battle. I was going to be fighting for my life, but I wasn't going to accept that I was going to be dying. And same person, another person could get the same type of diagnosis and, you know, die a few months later just because you accepted that. So I think Mm -hmm. that there's definitely, it's definitely a state of mind in terms of whether you accept it or not. And I think that there is definitely a difference between death and dying. And when, like a lot of the stories we talked about were people who knew, like they were in hospice, so they knew that they were going, like things were bad Mm -hmm. and they only had a limited amount of time. Um, The biggest fear, I think, for people is when they don't know when it's coming and they're like, well, I have all these things I want to do. What if Mm -hmm. I can't do them because I die? Mm -hmm. Um, But for those of us who've experienced like hospice and what that really is Mm -hmm. and like me, I literally had palliative care come in and tell me and my cousin's mom, one of you guys have to tell him that it's okay to let go. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, I'm not telling him that. Like, no, (laughs) I don't want him to go. And we get so selfish. I'm like, I don't want him to go. But it was like hard. And I remember it like yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, Because when you know it's coming, you know that you are dying. You either have a choice to be like, yes, I'm going to embrace this and roll with it and make sure it's the best few moments of my life remaining. Or you're like, I don't want to die and I'm going to fight and I'm going to struggle. So when Renee was like, you know, I'm ready, you know, because it's hard. It's hard work to die. It's not easy because we want to be here. Mm -hmm. And so I just remember like yesterday, like looking at my cousin's body. This is a man who was 6'8", like 400 pounds. When he passed, he was 168 pounds. And to watch him go from here to there. And I was like, I was... I knew it was selfish, but I'm like, please, Lord, just let it happen so he can stop suffering because he suffered so bad and it was so. So, you know, you use the word um, suffer. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to be in pain. I'm surprised that more people don't take steps as they move through life to control the degree of dignity they can afford themselves. So why so few people, for example, put in place uh, living wills or um, some kind of, you know, attorney relationship so that when perhaps they maybe lose their capacity to mentally function, that someone else is making sure that their wishes about how they want to be treated and and, and maybe to expire match the dignified approach they want in their life. My grandmother, (laughs) who died, I think she was 103, 104, she is an interesting character. She did when she she had planned her funeral out 20 years before she died. It was quite amazing. Mm. Like this is what I'm wearing. Okay. This is the program that we're going to have. <laughs> like super organized. And so I've been having these talks with my parents about, okay, so you're getting up there and my dad does have stage 4 esophageal cancer and he is dying. Mm-hmm. Um he's fine right now, but he's getting treatments um mm-hmm. but they you know, even as doctor said, you probably have a year. So I've been talking to my mom about this because my mom is very into genealogy. And years ago, she's like, we're having a headstone so everybody can find us later on. <laughs> it's like, okay, mom. And then now she's like, oh, I want to be cremated. And, yeah. and I've been trying to have this discussion with her, like, how do you all want to be buried? Do you have medical directives in place? They have a will in place, thankfully, but I really want to see that medical directive in place. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what do you want? We want to honor you. But mm-hmm. she's not ready. Like you said, Stuart, she's not talking about it. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny because she came from this woman who had it organized 20 years before she died mm-hmm. and paid for. Mm-hmm. So so I can't leave the subject of death without um, talking about homicides. So if, if there were um, 
This is not an easy situation. I don't want to reduce a complex and complicated situation to just a few bromides about let's do this and everything will be okay. But that being said, are, are there just a few ingredients that might set us on a more hopeful path as a community? I'm a person on the outside. Like I worked for a nonprofit agency um, and it was crazy for four years. I dealt with kids dying and trying to support families and raising money for funerals and calling people out at meetings, uh, like all of that. Like if you really support community, help this mom bury her kid. You know, I've done all that, but it wasn't until my two cousins were shot and murdered, like within a month of each other. And I'm like, you know what? I'm over it, I'm out. And I walked away from Impact One and literally left the city. Like I'm like, I can't even do this right now because we think that this is so normal for teenagers and young people to be shot every day. And nobody, I don't think that the interventions are as strong as they could be because I've seen it work in other cities and I know that we could do more. It goes back to what does it really mean to be a community and how, what does it mean to hold people accountable for what happens in your neighborhood? Um, what does it mean to be a, a resident in a community when you allow crazy nonsense to happen, when you know somebody's gunning for somebody else and you don't intervene, um, when you know you have somebody's ear and you can talk them out of doing something horrible, but you just let it unfold. We see this every day. And it's like little things that irritate me. It's not because little things end up being big things. But then you have the corner store, J&J. Somebody walks into the store and they rob the store two days in a row. I grew up on 40th Ave. I'm like, you really going to let these people just walk in and rob the store? That is the sad part. We don't really have a community and that impacts everything else. That's why it's okay. Somebody get, oh, somebody else got killed today. It's not okay. And that's because we don't have a true community here in the African-American community. I'm going to say that. Until we, and by we, I mean the larger we, embrace the entire city as a community, it doesn't seem that we can make as much progress as we should be making. But part of the challenge with that is Omaha historically is divided into North, South, and West. Mm -hmm. We didn't do that. Like That wasn't African-Americans deciding that that's how it's going to be. That's redlining and some other stuff that's systemic that we have no control over. Um, so when I say African-American community, it's because I feel like you have to keep your house in order. Somebody out on 168, they're not worried about what's happening on 24th Street. So it's like you have to have those checks and balances in your own community to make sure that other people see like, hey, like this is a real issue and this is our community, the bigger Omaha metro area. I think we don't do a good job of checking stuff that needs to be checked. And nobody in West Omaha is checking for some kid at like, you know, North High School or Central who's beefing with some other kids. So we have to have our own accountability for our kids and what happens in our communities. And then as a the greater Omaha area, we need to be real about how we marginalize North Omaha and South Omaha sometimes, and we isolate those communities too. That impacts homicides and other things, but we don't, it's not a collective community here. So as we begin to wrap the discussion, um, any final or perhaps I should say terminal thoughts uh, <laughs> from from each of you on the subject of death? My final thought um, is that it's uh, it's interesting that the conversation seems to swing both ways, right? That there's either not enough discussion about death so that people 
you know, don't put those directives in place that they need, don't have wills, aren't prepared for when it happens. But then there's so much conversation about it that, um, you know, the deaths of black kids and Latino kids just becomes an everyday thing that we see in the news and that politicians and whole government systems don't really seem to care. Um, and so, you know, by normalizing talk about death, hopefully those two extremes can somehow meet in the middle and people can be comfortable with facing their own mortality um, and also be concerned enough to care about the lives of other people in their community that, you know, isn't so far away because we're all here. I just, I think uh, death, it's death and taxes, the only things that (laughs) got to pay your taxes and you have to die. Um, We're born dying. I think we, if you experience a lot of death, you understand that, you know what that is. Um, But it's difficult when it's like a homicide or a young kid. It's like, you know, and we can't make that the norm. But we also can't be afraid of death because it's inevitable. And it's like the Lion King. It's the circle of life. You you live, you experience, and then you, you go back. My final thoughts are death is a part of all of our lives. And it's important that we reflect and learn from those experiences. I think we choose how we die most of the time. So... If you are concerned about your children and the people who you will leave behind, it's important that we live a full life, one filled with love and compassion and dignity so that our legacy can live on through the people that we touch every day. With me in dialogue today have been Jeanette Taylor, Amy Mather, Diana Martinez, and Keisha Holloway. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.